The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Throughout the season of Lent, we've been working through a series, The Places of the Passion. And what we've done in the series is we've looked at different places where Jesus shows up to. And what we've reminded ourselves of was the fact that when Jesus shows up in a place, he never leaves that place the same. When Jesus shows up, he transforms the place he is in. And so when Jesus shows up in a place of weakness, that place of weakness gets transformed into a place of God's power. When Jesus shows up in a place of suffering, that suffering is transformed into a place of God's love. And so today, as we enter into Holy Week, we now focus on Jesus' arrival, that Jesus shows up as king. And now when he shows up as king, he shows up in an unexpected way, doing some unexpected things. And so so I want to spend some time today, if you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 12. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,532. Now, as you turn to that text, one of the things that you might notice about this text as we jump into it is this is not the typical Palm Sunday lesson. This is, this is not the text when Jesus is arriving on the donkey. This is, this is actually what happens after Jesus arrives on the donkey. And, and so Jesus, he comes into the crowd saying, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And so the palm branches wave, the, the branches are laid on the ground, and then Jesus, Jesus does something very interesting. And so that's what I want to focus on today by looking at verse 12, what Jesus does immediately following his arrival on Palm Sunday. Verse 12 tells us, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. See, the first thing that Jesus does after he arrives on the donkey in Jerusalem, the first thing that Jesus does is he goes to the temple, which is interesting because if you're, if you're a Jewish person in the, in the day of Jesus awaiting the Messiah, one of the things you're waiting for the Messiah to do is to restore the temple. And so Jesus, um, a parallel passage in the book of Mark actually tells us that Jesus goes to the temple. He looks around. No one's there. He, he, then go, and then he then leaves. And after thinking about it all night, then he comes back the next day. And so this is actually, this is actually on Monday at the temple. Jesus then shows up. And he's furious. He's furious and he begins flipping over the tables, which really messes with the, the picture of Jesus that many of us often have. Like in my mind, for, for, for a long time, I've often, I, th- I tend to think of Jesus as this, like he's, he's really calm and collected. Like he always, like he's very soft-spoken and gentle all the time. Like I picture Jesus, like he, n- he never has a hair out of place and his robe is always perfectly pressed. And like he doesn't actually walk, he just kind of glides from place to place. Right, that's the picture I have of Jesus. And then, and then you read this, and it's like, what got into Jesus? 
Like, what, like what's going on with Jesus? Because now he shows up and he's not quiet. He's, he's angry and he's flipping over tables. What, what got into Jesus? Why, why is Jesus so bothered by this commerce, this buying and selling? Like, he doesn't just go and like say, hey, guys, we need to talk about this. Like, no, he just, he just starts flipping tables over. And so in, in the, and so in this text, in this sequel to the Palm Sunday entry, what we find is Jesus angrily is flipping these tables over. He's flipping these tables over to, to point something out. And so, so the question, what, what has gotten into Jesus? The best way we can, we can answer that question is by looking at what Jesus specifically says. Um, and so what we see in verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting two different Old Testament references. He's quoting the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah references the den of robbers. Isaiah references this house of prayer. And so if we look at the text of Isaiah, what we'll find is there is a lot more going on here than we might first think of when Jesus says that you have, that you have turned a house of prayer into a den of robbers. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 56. Here's what Isaiah wrote. He said, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so this quick phrase while Jesus is flipping over the tables is pointing to Isaiah 56. And he's not just saying a house of prayer, but he's referencing a house of prayer for all the nations, for the people who would have listened to Jesus say, they would have immediately been able to fill in the blanks. And so what Isaiah is pointing out is those who are the outsiders, those who weren't Jewish, the foreigners, that they had a place in God's family. That God's family was not just for those on the inside, but it was for all people. Those, those who, who are the foreigners, Isaiah says, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Because this is a pr- house of prayer for all the nations. See, what we find Jesus doing in this moment by referencing Isaiah 56, Jesus is referencing not the activity inside the temple, but the mission outside the temple. Jesus is saying this temple is a house of prayer, but it's not a house of prayer just for us. We are a house of prayer for all people in all places, of all languages, of all races, of all ages. We are a house of prayer for all the nations. The outsiders would be accepted. The outsiders would be welcomed. The outsiders who normally wouldn't have a place to worship God would have a place to worship and their sacrifices would be accepted on the altar of God. Jesus is pointing out, no, no, you, you who are are in the temple, you have what was supposed to be for all nations, you have now robbed those nations from their opportunity to worship. See, in Jesus' day, the temple essentially was a set of boxes within boxes. Now, this was by design. This was according to the old, the old covenant and the way that God instructed them. But the way, the way that this, the, the temple worked in Jesus' day is that at the outside would be typically where people would, would gather, there, where there would be teaching and conversation. And so people would do that outside the temple. And if you were to go inside the temple, the outermost level was what was called the court of Gentiles. 
And so if you were not Jewish, you could, you could go into the temple, but you could only go into that outer court. And then if you were Jewish, you could go into the next box. If you were a man, you could go further. If you were a priest, you could go further. Until eventually you get to the most holy place, which is where only the high priest could go once a year, only by, by the blood of a pure sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And so and the reason this was, was because, the, because God promised that he would be present in the most holy place. And the holiness of God was so powerful that it would destroy sinful people. And so this was the system. Which is, part, which is why when Jesus then comes and Jesus dies on Good Friday, this is why it's so significant that the temple curtain gets torn. Because now this separation from the presence of God and sinful people is no longer there because of the work of Jesus. But when Jesus shows up at the temple, what's fascinating is what Jesus does is he shows up in the court of Gentiles. That's where Jesus is when he begins flipping over these tables. Because see, what the religious leaders did is they decided that this outer court, the court of the Gentiles, could be the place where buying and selling goods would, would happen. Which means if you are a foreigner, if you are not Jewish, and you arrive at the temple for worship, that these people the only place you could go was the place where all the buying and selling and the chaos was happening. And so you arrived to worship, and the closest you could get to the presence of God were people right, right, were right next to you buying and selling goods. And so Jesus is furious because, because, they, because the, the priests made a decision to exclude the outsiders, to say what they needed from the presence of God didn't matter as much as what they wanted in the buying and selling of goods. See, Jesus is furious because they made a decision based on what they wanted, not on what God decreed the temple was actually for. God said in Isaiah that it's for all the nations. But now the priest made a decision that it's, no, this is for us. This is our place. And so we're going to exclude them for our own benefit. See, Jesus isn't upset about commerce. He's upset that they eliminated the place for outsiders to worship. See, the closest you could get if you were not Jewish was the court of Gentiles, and they were now robbed from an opportunity to worship and receive from the gifts of God. And so Jesus is in there, and he freaks out, throwing over the table, saying, this is not how things should be. And notice what the text tells us after he does that. Verse 14 says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and Jesus healed them. The blind and the lame are, were the unclean. They were the people who were excluded. They're people who had no place. They weren't allowed there. And so Jesus flips over the tables, is getting things out of the way, things that stood in the way of people experiencing the presence of God. And so Jesus gets them out of the way, and those who are unclean, those who are on the outside, those who are excluded, come to Jesus. And Jesus leveraged his, his authority. His authority to forgive every sin, his authority to heal every disease. And so Jesus uses that to heal those who are on the outside. Now, when we look at this, this can seem like distant history. I mean, after all, we don't operate with, with the temple system that's been fulfilled, that's, that's not necessary for today. We don't divide our church into, like, men sit over here and women sit over there. We don't, we don't exclude certain people um, from being able to come, come to a certain place because it's a more holy place. No, no, no we, don't, we don't see that kind of thing. But think about what is at the heart of what angers Jesus. See, when Jesus is flipping over tables in, in, in the court of Gentiles, what he's saying to them, he, he, he's saying to them, you 
have decided the things that you want are more important than what those on the outside need. He's saying to them, what you believe that what you can get is more important than what they so desperately need. Now, we may not do it the same way, but the human heart hasn't changed. See, the way the human heart is, because of our, our sin nature, is we, we think about me. But I think me, me, me. What's in it for me? What can I get? Right, I'm bent in on myself. In fact, this is, this is why you'll hear, hear Christians use language, like when, they're, when they feel like their church no longer meets their needs, they'll use language of things like church shopping, which is a bit of an odd thing. And you know who never set, describes it as church shopping? People who aren't Christian. Right, that's what Christians say when they feel like they're, they're, the country club no, no longer meets their needs. I mean, imagine the Apostle Paul talking to somebody who's going church shopping. Imagine, like, the confusion in his eyes when they're saying, well, you know, that, the pastor at that church, he's just so funny, and I really, I mean, and he's only 22 minutes, and these guys, I mean, he's like 35 minutes, and, and so we're going to go there. Or, you know, the band, I mean, they were just killing it today. Now, now if you're a guest and you're, and you're here and you're, you're trying to decide what's a place for you, some of, the, some of the things are important for you to decide. All right, what's going to best serve you and your family? But you, know what, but you know what often happens? Is we never stop thinking about ourselves when we become a part of the family of God. We never stop thinking about, well, what do I like? What do I want? And this doesn't change like when you're a pastor either. I just get to decide what I want and do it. Um, but this, this is the same, I mean, it's the same thing. Right? What, what's in it for me? I mean, there's a huge difference between a country club mentality and the church. See, a country club exists to meet my social, my financial, my emotional desires. And if it doesn't, I just find a new one. Or, or I keep that one and I add another one on top of it. But a church is different. See, a church exists to meet the deepest needs of everyone, not just those who are on the inside. Now, now, now think about the significance of what that means, though, for you. Right, think about that. Because if, that, if that's what the church does, and if the church gives to you what meets your deepest needs, if the church over and over again gives you the promises of the gospel in the word, in the sacraments, if, Jesus, if, if the church is giving you that over and over again, what that means is you have everything you need in Christ. And if you have everything you need in Christ... Doesn't that free you to sacrifice some of the things you want for the people who need it more than you do? That, that you can give up some of those things because it's what the kids need. Because you can give up some of those things because it's what your neighbor who, who's never been here needs. See, when you have everything you need in Christ, it frees you to look at the mission and say, Jesus has made us a house of prayer, not just for ourselves, but for all the nations because Jesus is for everyone, for all ages, all races, all backgrounds, no matter what sin they've experienced, no matter where they've come from, no matter what they, what they do, Jesus is for all people. And so when Jesus shows up as king, he transforms the temple from being a, a place where the religious gather to a place that exists for all the nations. And now, I don't know if you noticed this about, about what happens at the temple. 
See, see what we often, if, if you've been a part of a church for a while, you likely think of yourself as the insider. But, but in the story where Jesus is, is flipping over the tables, in a very real way, he's doing that for you. Because it, it, for, for most of you, you're, not, you're probably not Jewish. And so what that means for you is if you were around in Jesus' day, the, the, the buying and selling, Jesus flipping over the tables, that would have been to invite you in. Because you would have been excluded. Because, because your culture, your behavior would have kept you on the outside. And so what Jesus does is he's throwing things out of the way that have stood between you and the presence of God. He's throwing tables out of the way because he says, I want you to be a part of my family. And so the question I think we should all ask then is what what tables does Jesus need to flip over? What tables are standing between you and God that when Jesus arrives, he's going to push to the side? What, What tables in this place Keep people at the fringes that Jesus, when he shows up, he's going to push them out of the way and invite people in. What tables in the kingdom of God do people turn into barriers between Jesus and the family of God? See, if you're somebody who's always felt like you've been on the outside, you join a long history of people who Jesus intentionally leveraged his authority to reach. To throw over the tables. To use his authority to forgive and to heal those who the communities cast aside. I don't know what's kept you at the fringes. Maybe for some of you it's the past relationships you've had. That brokenness in those relationships makes new relationships not easy. And so maybe for you what that, what that means is Jesus is throwing those tables aside. And saying I know that you've been hurt by your family but I want to make you a part of a new family. Maybe for you, it's, it's the shame you experience. And, and so for you, you feel like you have to be on the outside because if you, if, you, if you are brought in, people might find out who you really are. And so maybe Jesus for you is throwing aside that table and saying, this community, everyone's like that. Because everyone here has sins that they hope never find them out. And so Jesus is saying to you, no, that table is not in your way. Welcome to the family because you are not the things that you've done. See, whatever stands between you and God, Jesus shows up to get that out of the way. This is why in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the greatest barrier between us and the holiness of God is the sin that separates us. And so Jesus throws that table out of the way and says, You who are in Christ Jesus, you who have been purchased and won by the blood of Jesus, you who have been baptized into Christ, you are united into Jesus. And so you are not condemned. There's not a question about it. You are not condemned. And so Paul in verse 38 then goes on and and he says, For I am convinced... I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul lists out everything that could separate you from God. Every possible table, Paul is saying, Jesus has pushed that to the side. 
Jesus is greater than anything that keeps you on the outside. No matter what has kept you separated from God, Jesus has come flipping over tables to make sure it no longer stands in your way. By his own life, he's ensured that nothing will separate you. He's used his authority, his power to heal, to forgive. Jesus is greater than anything that wants to keep you on the outside. That means Jesus is greater than your sin. No matter how much you're ashamed of it, no matter how guilty you feel, Jesus is greater than your sins. Jesus is greater than your suffering. No matter how long you suffer or how bad it hurts, Jesus is greater. He's greater than your anger. The anger that you have that leads you to do things you regret, that leads you to say things you wish you never said, Jesus is greater than that anger. He's greater than the abuse. Not the sin that you did, but the sin that was done to you. He's greater. He's greater than the sickness that you, your loved ones, are facing. He's greater than death itself. Isn't that what Holy Week is all about? That Jesus is greater than all those things and he arrives to use his authority for all the nations. And so Jesus does that and he heals and he forgives and the kids rejoice. The kids are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The kids are shouting in the temple and the religious leaders are getting upset. Right, the religious leaders say, no, 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 keep, keep them quiet. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, no, I don't think you understand. I don't think you understand. Haven't you read the Psalms? Which is, he's rhetorical because he knows they, they have. He says, haven't you ever read? Right, from the lips of infants you have ordained praise. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them, he's saying, the kids know something about me that you don't. That I have come to save. I have come to do what no one else could do. A couple months ago, I was having a conversation with my oldest son, Eli. Now, I want to preface this story before I, I share it. If you're a parent who, who does family devotions with your kids, um, I don't want you to take this conversation as the model of what, what devotions might look like in your home. Um, because this is not how it usually goes, okay? So, so usually in my family, when we try to do family devotions, it involves my kids doing somersaults on the bed, um, them hitting each other, pulling each other's hair, and me shouting at them to, to be quiet, and then say, but Jesus loves you. Um, so that's usually what happens, not what I'm about to share, but I want to share this anyways because I, I think it's valuable. And so a couple months ago, I, I went to check on my son when, when he was in his bed, and he, and he wanted to ask me a question about Jesus. And so I climb up to his bed, and, and he says, Daddy, why is Jesus invisible? Which is a good question. So I get excited because anytime my kids are asking Bible questions, I just, it's fun for me. And so we begin to talk, and yes, Jesus is invisible, but he's here with us, and he's in your heart. And so we're talking about that a little bit. And I said, and, I said, and th there's one day where he won't be invisible anymore, where we'll see him come. The Bible just calls it, describes him coming down from the clouds. I said, so at the end of the world, Jesus is going to come back and we're going to see him. Um, and I very quickly learned the end of the world is not exciting for a five-year-old, um, <laughs> which, 
which is, shouldn't be surprising because the end of the world is not really exciting for anybody. Um, but so, so fear then is in his eyes because I said Jesus is coming back at the end of the world. And in his mind, Jesus comes back and now mommy and daddy aren't with him and everything he loves, all his power rangers, everything's like that's out the window. And so now I have to backpedal I, because now my son's not going to be a Christian anymore because I told him Jesus is going to come back. Um, and so I'm backpedaling. I said, no, no, no. Um, no, this, this is going to be a good thing. And so, and so then I begin to describe um, what, what the scriptures would call the, the, the new creation. And, and so I'm not talking about heaven, just heaven after you die, but, but the, the very end, the new heavens, the new earth, the restored creation, things being put back together the way God intended for them to be. Now, I didn't use any of that language because he wouldn't understand. Um, but I begin to say, you know, you know, some days you have really, just, you have hard days. Some days you're just sad, and, 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 he, and he gets that. He, he, he knows when he has a hard day, when he's exhausted, and so he says, yeah. Well, when Jesus, when Jesus shows up, and we can see him that day, there are going to be no more days like that. And so he gets a, he gets a little bit happier. You know, you know when you have bad dreams? There's not going to be any more bad dreams. It, you, you know, you know what? Not only is there going to not be any bad dreams, there's not even going to be bedtimes. You don't have to go to bed. And so, so then he, he starts to get happy. Um, but, but he has an important question because there's one thing in his mind that really separates us from being just being okay and being really good. And he says, will there be working days? And because in his mind, if daddy has to go to work, this is still isn't going to be very good. And so I said, no, there will be no more working days, only playing days. And so then he just begins to giggle. Like he begins to giggle with, with joy, and he starts to talk about all the toys that we'll be able to play with when Jesus comes back. Because, because it's just going to be all working, all fun, all happy, no sadness, none of that anymore. Um, and, and so I'm excited about the conversation we have. I later learned that my wife at that moment is fearful because she's only thinking about the next day at preschool when Eli tells all the other preschoolers about the end of the world. Um, and, what she, and so, but, but we continue then, and, and we're talking about what, what this looks like. That, that Jesus, Jesus is going to return and he makes all things new. And so he wants to know where we're going to live. And so I pull out my best growing up as a 90s kid who listened to way too much Christian music. And I said, oh, I got, I got this. It's going to be a big, big house with lots and lots of room. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. Um, and if you have no idea with my, what I'm referencing, you are far better off. Um, and so, but, but it comes from the scriptures where when Jesus says, in my house there will be many rooms. And so we're talking about this new creation, and, and, and Jesus says, in my house there will be many rooms. And so his question then is, well, can I have a sleepover with my friends? Which I can tell him, because I know the friends he's talking to, he names them off. And I said, well, yeah, you know, they love Jesus. And so anybody who loves Jesus, we know We'll get to experience that incredible new creation with us. And so you can have a sleepover with them every night because they're going to be there. Mommy and daddy are going to be there. Your sister's going to be there. We're all going to be there. And it's going to be awesome. And so he is giggling and giggling and laughing and so joyful. And then he looks me in the eyes. He says, Daddy, go tell mommy. He says, we need to tell everyone. See, the joy of knowing what it means when Jesus gives his gifts to the world. The joy of knowing what God is at work doing and leading us towards. In that moment, he got it. 
That's what Jesus was doing at the temple. Right? And that's what the kids understood. The kids understood that when Jesus showed up, it was for all people. It was for the nations. And it was so unbelievably good news that they were shouting because everybody needed to hear. And it was the joy that my son experienced when he talked about when Jesus returns. That is so joyful that he just giggled and he immediately knew, no prompting, he just says, we need to tell everyone. That's how incredible it is. It is for all the nations, for all people. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us this incredible gift, a gift that's not just for us, but it's for all people. That no matter where we come from, no matter what we've done, that we know that you are greater. That you're greater than every sin, you're greater than our shame, you're greater than our addictions or our suffering or sickness, you're greater than even death itself. And so we, we pray today that whatever things have tried to keep us on the outside, in fact, even some of us may have experienced things that we feel like are keep, currently keeping us on the outside, I, pr- I pray that whatever it is, that, that you remind us that you're throwing those things out of the way. That whatever separates us, you, you push that to the side and say that that no longer will separate us from your love, from your presence. I pray that, that we experience the incredible joy that comes only in knowing what you've done for us. The joy that comes in knowing that you forgive every sin. The joy that comes from knowing that you heal A joy that comes in knowing that you are at work today and that you will one day make all the sad things come untrue. And I pray that like the kids in the temple, respond in worship and know know who you are and what you've done. I pray that we might respond the same way. That we with joy might cling to the promise that comes with your arrival. That the joy that comes as we look to the work that you've done in this week, as we remember your death and your resurrection, and as we look to the promise of the final resurrection of all the dead, of your return and restoration of all creation, and that we might with joy believe and trust and know we have to tell everyone. Amen.